How about I pray and then we'll get into uh, page 17 is where we'll be in your notes, picking up where we left off last week. I'll pray and then we'll get into that. Father, we thank you so much for our time together and we ask your blessing on this study this morning that as we examine the deity of Jesus, that the Son of God would be lifted up in our hearts and minds, that he would be reigning supreme in the thoughts and the intents of our heart, that we would meditate on this glorious doctrine today, and that you would, by way of your Spirit, provide us application and uh, just Christ-like love that flows from this as we get to know him more. Lord, we thank you for this time and ask your blessing on it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, last week we began our section on the nature of Christ. You see that at the top of page 17, particularly this lesson titled, Jesus is God. And we talked about his role pre-incarnation. What does pre-incarnation mean? What does that refer to? Before his birth, right? Before he was incarnate, before Jesus was incarnate. Incarnate means to take on flesh, to take on uh, a human experience. What was Jesus' role? What did we say last week? Uh, what were two of his roles before he took on flesh and was born of Mary? Creator. Creator, very good. And? And messenger, yes. Let's see, where did I, here we go. He was creator and messenger. So he was, of course, from all eternity, he has been a member of the Godhead, the Son of God, equal in his eternal power and nature with Father and Spirit. And uh, that's displayed through his creative acts. Because who, who creates besides God? Nobody, right? Now, there is a sense in which we as uh, creatures made in God's image, we reflect the image of God as we create things. Some of you like to make things. Joe likes to make quilts and pillows and other things. But, and that is a creative act, and that reflects who we are as God's creatures in creating things. And we're able to do that in a way that's deeper and more complex than a chimpanzee. Right, Joe? Okay. <laughs> and uh, we're able to be creative and to, be in, to employ ingenuity in what we do, okay? And so there is a reflection that we have as image bearers of God, reflecting the creator. But when it talks about Jesus being creator, it's saying that Jesus created what? All things. Very good. That's the biblical answer. He created all things. And there's only one who created all things, God alone. And we see in Scripture, Father, Son, and Spirit are creator. Does anybody need page 17, by the way? Yes. Okay. I've got some extras. I forgot about that. I have three extras. So I'm down to two. Anybody else? 17 and 18? Going once, going twice. Hey, the Russells. There we go. Good, good, good. Okay. I'll put that there. Uh, messenger. What did we talk about with Jesus as messenger? What was that all about? Look at your notes. Hopefully you took some. The Son of God, pre-incarnate, functioned as what kind of messenger? How would you describe that? Isn't he the angel of the Lord? Yes. Talked to Abraham and Isaac. Yep. Yep, that's it. That, that's what we dwelt on. He had a function as angel of the Lord. We looked at these three passages. What was going on in Exodus 3? Moses at the burning bush. 
And it says in that text that the angel of the Lord was speaking to him out of the burning bush. Yes, God was speaking to him out of the burning bush. Wow, the angel of the Lord is God. Okay. In Judges 13, we, I don't know if we ever actually read the verse when we looked at that last week of uh, whose father and mother that was. But do you know whose father and mother it was in Judges 13? Manoah was the father of Samson. Samson. You guys remember Samson with the long hair and the strength, you know, all that stuff? He's got the... And poetry. Lions and bees and honey and carcasses and all kinds of fun stuff. Uh, foxes' tails tied together, a donkey's jawbone. I mean, Samson just had a lot going on, okay? Well, <clears throat> before he was born, the angel of the Lord visited his mom and dad. And the angel of the Lord's appearance was that like an angel, but there was also this mannishness to him where he was like a man, but he was also in brilliant splendor. And his name, he said that his name is what? What did the angel of the Lord say in that passage? My name is, starts with a W, starts with a W-O, no, starts with a W-O-N, wonderful, 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 how wonderful it is, we're, we're retaining so much week to week, oh my, okay, he said his name is wonderful, okay. Now, that also has an attribute of divinity in there because we, we cross-reference that with Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, right? Mighty God. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, okay? And then we also looked at Zechariah chapter 1, and there's this vision with the angel of the Lord there, which is also pretty impactful. And uh, that's what we dwelt on, and that's where we stopped last week is Jesus in his pre-incarnate state, uh, he existed, and he didn't just exist twiddling his thumbs, waiting for the right time when he would come and be born, but he was doing stuff. He was busy. And we could look at other passages too, uh, from the book of Daniel, and as uh, Sarah mentioned in his interaction with Abraham, there are just other places we could look, but uh, you get the idea. And I do have that extra handout that I need to make copies of, because I'm confident not all of you have it. Uh, it's on this side. It has a lot of text. This is from Norman Geisler, Systematic Theology, talking about the angel of the Lord, and he gives a lot of cross-references that we didn't cover. And on the back side, it has titles of Christ. We'll look at that uh, sometime here in the next couple weeks. But this is from MacArthur's Systematic Theology. And so uh, I can make copies of that and get those to you hopefully next week, if I remember. Okay, But uh, the angel of the Lord was Jesus. When Jesus comes to earth and he is born of Mary, we do not see the angel of the Lord appear again. This doesn't happen. And uh, we get these equations of the angel of the Lord with God, and so we look back and we say, okay, the angel of the Lord, pre-incarnate Son of God, uh, that's what has to make sense there. And uh, when Jesus comes, we have the final revelation of God in his person and work. Okay, any questions or thoughts on pre-incarnate Stuff before we get into the new text for today. It's called a Christophany, right? Yep, that's a word that you could use for a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus is a Christophany. You will sometimes also see the term theophany, where God appears to man in some way that a man can perceive him and interact with him. That's a theophany. 
But when it's particularly the person of the Son, that can be called a Christophany. Yeah. Good. Anything else? All right. Well, we're only looking at three passages today. You can see on your handout. John chapter 1 on page 18, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1. Those are the three passages we're looking at. And uh, for John chapter 1, uh, that should be more of a review for this class because we've looked at that uh, multiple times before. Uh, one last thought on the angel of the Lord, maybe two last thoughts on the angel of the Lord. Uh, Norman Geisler, once the sun came in permanent incarnate form, never again does the angel of the Lord appear, though an angel appears from time to time. No angel that commands or accepts worship or claims to be God ever appears again. Okay, it's an important note. Charles Ryrie, he often acted as a messenger to various people. He guided and protected Israel. He was the instrument of judgment on Israel when God sent a pestilence on the people in 1 Chronicles 21. And he was the agent of refreshment to Elijah. 1 Kings 19. So that's talking about what Jesus was doing in his pre-incarnate state. These are functions as messenger, and even beyond that a little bit, if you want to jot down those passages, you can see what Jesus was doing before his incarnation. Okay? You've got uh, some different elements there. But uh, the big idea, of course, is that Jesus is God. He has eternally existed, and we'll see that from three New Testament passages today. Okay? I'm going to leave this slide in three, two... <laughs> There's smoke coming off of uh, Rex's pen over there. Uh, one. All right. It is of utmost importance that we understand what the apostles have said about Jesus and what Jesus has said about himself. That one uh, handout I was just talking about that has the titles of Christ on it, that's going to be a pretty important uh, sheet, reference, resource for you as you interact with people who say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, yes, he did, actually. And uh, this has a whole bunch of references you can look at. And uh, we have the apostles, too, that talked about Jesus' deity. And it's not that we just go to the red letters and we have to see everything that we believe in the red letters. God gave us an entire New Testament. Apostles and prophets that followed Jesus. And we need to look at that, too. Okay? Deity of Christ, we have three chapter ones that will point us to the deity of Christ. We have John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. If you can remember that, you'll be a good Christian when they come knock, knock, knocking on your door and you get in those conversations with people about the person of Jesus and the nature of Christ. Remember, oh, Sunday school, Jeremy said that Jesus said his name is wonderful. Okay, that's the one you really forgot this morning. So Jesus said his name is wonderful when he was the angel of the Lord in Judges 13. But also remember three chapter ones. John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1. Now, there's also all these other passages. We'll get to those down the road. I'm just putting it up there for shock effect value. Look at these through the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Jesus making claim to deity. Okay? But let's focus on the three chapter 1, starting with John 1.1. 1, 1. Let's all turn there. Again, this should be more like review for you because we have looked at this passage many times. It's very, very important for what we believe not only about the nature of Christ specifically, but about the Godhead as a whole. In John chapter 1, verse 1. Who can read that for us? Go ahead, Sarah. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, 
Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Alright, so there's all kinds of great stuff to see there. If we just dwell on verse 1, there's many things, uh, there are many things that we can look at. So, you have on your sheet here, where we talk about the Word. In the beginning was the Word. Well, what is the Word? It's not so much a what as it is a who, right? Yeah. Yeah, the word is not so much an it as the word is a he. Okay? You can say the word here is the pre-incarnate Christ. In the beginning was the word. And uh, we'll see that as we tie it to verse 14. It says in the beginning was the word. And in verse 2, it kind of restates this. He, not it, he was in the beginning with God. Well, when we talk about in the beginning, uh, what, are we, what are we speaking of? We're talking about before creation, of course, because he goes on to say in verse 3, all things came into being through him, so therefore he must precede creation. But what we have in Genesis 1.1, what we have in the New Testament, where we see this phrase, in the beginning, uh, by the way, you think John knew about Genesis 1.1 and started his gospel on purpose this way? I'd say so. Is we're going before creation, but we're also, that's just a general term for eternity past. Before any created thing existed. Now we can't wrap our minds around that because we are utterly time bound. We are absolutely bound by time. Everything we do runs on a clock, right? Everything we do can be timed. You have a starting point, you have an ending point. We're all going to have a tombstone one of these days, apart from the rapture happening before you die, and it's going to say, starting point, ending point. Well, John here, like Moses in Genesis 1.1, is saying in the beginning, going before all created things, which puts us into eternity past that only God has known and enjoyed. Before time even existed, in the beginning, okay? Eternality is what's noted here. And it says in verse 1 that the Word was with God and the Word was God. So like we talked about in our lessons on the Trinity, what do you have with that? Well, you've got plurality. The Word was with God. But then you also have singularity. The Word was God. How can the Word be both with God and God? Well, yeah, yeah, you have to have some sort of uh, doctrine that allows for this, that, that flows out from the Word. So if all you had was the Word was with God, well, you've got God here and the Word, and that's it. And perhaps you would read into that. You've got uh, God who is one being, one person. Then you've got the Word, same thing, one being, one person. If that's all you had was the word was with God, stop. Well, that's definitely a possible conclusion. You could go there. But what you have is not just the word was with God. You have that the word was God. So instead of God and the word, you also have God equals the word. The word equals God. There's an equa- equivalence happening here where the word is God. And so, you have to adjust this. You have to adjust these conclusions and say, okay, well, I can't conclude 
you've got two separate beings who are each one person. But apparently God is more complicated than that. And so, there's only one God. That's a given in Scripture. So you have one God, that's stated many times, and you have a plurality of persons, and of course what we find in scriptures, and it's not just Father and Son, but then you have the Spirit, who's called God. You have one God and three persons. And that is what flows from John 1.1, 1, 1, that we have the Word being with God, and the Word is God. And so that gets us to this doctrine of the Trinity, because you can't be honest with the text and explain it in another way. You just can't. There's but one God, and the Word is God. But the Word was with God. So there's a distinction in persons, yet there's only one God. I should stop there for a moment. See if you have any follow-ups. Again, this should be more like review for us, but thoughts or questions? Listen to a really cool thing where it talks about, you know, God's all-knowing, He's all-powerful, He's above us in all ways, so it stands to reason that he would be one person, three beings, like higher, again, higher than us. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, otherwise he would be just like us. And he says, uh, that is a mistake. In the Psalms, he tells Israel, I have this against you. You thought I was just like you. Mm-hmm. Hey, well, if you start going down that road in your mind, okay, well, God's a dude. Red light, blinking, red light, you get the railroad things coming down. Don't go. No, no, no. Okay. A dude? Oh, all the time. And what did that do inside for you, Stan? Was that I just laughed. That's not a very reverential term as you use for a grandfather, yeah. Yeah, usually it's just by peers I'm called that, so yeah. But that's okay. I like to say that me, myself, and I have no problem. (laughs) All right. Let's go down to verse 14. John chapter 1. So same chapter. Verse 14. Someone want to read that for us? Who's got it? John 1, 14. I got it. Okay. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. All right. So let's... Look at some of these phrases. The word became flesh. Became flesh. We have deity taking on humanity and maintaining both natures. Never in John or in the rest of Scripture uh, do you get this idea that by Jesus, the Son of God, becoming incarnate, taking on a creaturely existence, that he gave up his divinity. We don't see the Trinity being broken by Jesus taking on the form of a servant, and taking on true humanity. And this was true humanity, by the way. Okay, this is uh, through and through, I mean, totally comprehensively true humanity that he added. It wasn't uh, his own spin on humanity so that he could maintain his deity. It was true humanity. And next week, I think, is when we get into that. We'll talk about the hypostatic union and the two natures of Christ. But for now, deity takes on humanity, and deity, Jesus maintains his deity and his humanity at the same time. There's glory here too. You see that in verse 14. We saw his glory. And it's qualified here, not just a general glory, but it's glory as of the only begotten from the Father. So you have deity with humanity, and in some sense, 
that glory comes through. Okay? We talked about uh, maybe last week, I guess it was, that in, in a sense Jesus had to veil his glory. If he walked around in his unveiled glory, people would just die, right? Uh, you cannot be in the presence of God as a sinner and live. He dwells in unapproachable light. That doesn't mean you can approach him willy-nilly. So, uh, in a sense, Jesus was cloaked with some sort of humility. But, also in a sense, they saw his glory. John, you might remember, he was on the mount when Jesus was transfigured. So he got a special peek into the glory of Jesus. And it says, of the only Son. It was the glory as of the only begotten from the Father. This is a title related to deity. It comes from the Greek word monogenes. And this word, uh, as you might pick up on, monogenes, has a prefix on it. Mono, what does mono mean? One. This word, which is used, I think, nine, ten times in the New Testament, always has the sense of exclusivity with it. One, only. You could say only in there, too. There's this sense of only each time. That's why it's translated, at least in the New American Standard, I believe, every time the word comes up in the New Testament, as only begotten. There's a uniqueness. And so sometimes people want to focus on this aspect, the second part of the word, and say, well, this means generated or begotten, came into existence. Jesus is a creature. He's just the first creature. or He's just a, a higher creature than the rest of the creatures. I'd say focus on this part first before you get here. Because the prefix, mono, always has to do with uniqueness. Or, like I said, exclusivity. And that will guide what the word means. Especially when you look at the context of how the apostles use this word. Uh, There's a reason why at the Council of Nicaea... And we don't go back to the Council of Nicaea as a church authority. Okay? The Council of Nicaea was when various Christians got together to articulate and summarize, summarize our doctrine. Okay? The most important aspects of our doctrine. Nicaea was not a time when God had the church come together so they could make something in addition to the Bible that was just as authoritative as the Bible. Not what we believe. However, those councils are really important. Nicaea is not the only one. And when we go back to Nicaea and we see how they articulated this, it's pretty good. In fact, it's really good. They made a point to say that when we talk about the Son of God, we say He's begotten, not made. Begotten, not made. See, when you jump to this and you just focus on begotten, not only begotten, Remember, you've got to have only. If you just say begotten, well, then it just sounds like made. Because you read through the genealogies that are in Scripture, and Adam beget Seth, and on and on the line goes, beget, beget, beget. Well, Jesus is just someone that God begot. He made Jesus, is what people might say. No, 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 no. There's a special word that's used here in the Greek, monogenes, only begotten, and it has reference to Jesus' exclusivity and uniqueness as the Son of God. In fact, uh, Rex, do you have your NIV with you? I do. Could you go to John 3.16? 
Someone recite for me John 3.16 from memory. Interesting. Okay, that was interesting. Were you saying it too, Mandy? Yeah. You say yours from memory. Uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Uh-huh. Whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Did you catch the difference between what you two said in the first half of the verse? No. Say it again, Joanna. <laughs> say it exactly the same way you said it the first time. <laughs> Stop. Say yours again. Okay. What does the NIV say, Rex? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Okay. What does somebody else have from a different translation besides NIV? John 3.16. NIV says one and only. Oh, mine says only begotten son. Okay. That's what version? NASB, okay. Anybody else have one and only, or does everybody have only begotten? ESV says his only son. His only son, okay, good. All right, so what's the deal? They're all translating this word. I mean, there's the same Greek word that's the basis for all of them. But you have some saying only begotten, some saying one and only, ESV just saying only. Well, that's because the thrust of this word is not this second half of the word. The thrust of the word is this only aspect. So one and only in the NIV, I think is a perfect translation. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. There's a focus on the uniqueness of Jesus. He is not like a creature. How many creatures are there? Lots and lots. How many humans have lived on the face of the earth through human history? Like billions, right? We don't know the exact number, but billions. We'll say billions. Okay. So, you could say that all of us were made by God, but that's not what's being said here. Because there's nothing unique about being made by God. You're one of 10 billion, 20 billion. But Jesus is one of one. There's something unique here that's going beyond this aspect of making or begetting as a father begets a child. We're going beyond that and focusing on the exclusivity It always has the sense of only when it's used in the New Testament. Always has that sense. So this sets the Son of God apart as unique from creation. Some people, again, will go to this word and say, see, he's a creature like us. When actually the word is saying the exact opposite. He's unique from all of creation because he's the one and only. Well, if you look at creatures, there are lots. But he's set apart. Sarah? Even with That's exactly right. Yep. Yep, we looked at that last week in John 17, verse 5. Jesus was praying to the Father, and he says, Glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world was. Again, before the world was language takes us to before creation, takes us to eternity past. You have the Son of God dwelling in the same glory as the Father, the glory that God says he will not share with another. It's glory exclusive to God. And Jesus said he had it in eternity past. And he comes to earth and he reveals that glory to some degree that the Apostle John picks up on. And so John says he has the glory of the only Son, the one who is sharing in the glory of the Father. Exclusive uniqueness. Okay. Other thoughts or questions on John 1? Doing all right? Hanging in there? All right. 
Very good. Well, Colossians 1 is where we go next. Colossians chapter 1 will be on page 18 now. And let's all turn there together in the New Testament. After Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, you find Colossians. And we have to take Colossians 1 in small chunks because there's a lot to see. So we'll start with just the first two verses of the passage we're looking at. Colossians 1, 15 and 16. Would someone read those two verses? Rex. Got it. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. All right, so perhaps you're talking to someone who's at your door, thinking through that again, having an evangelistic conversation, and you're explaining monogamous, one and only, uniqueness aspect. It cannot mean that he's a creature like the rest of us. Because that would defeat the whole purpose of the mono, right? Okay, and the person says, okay, I'm tracking with you, I'm tracking with you. But, aha! Colossians 1.15 says, firstborn. Now, there's no getting around this. He is the firstborn. The first creature of God. This is a Jehovah's Witness argument, by the way. They'll say, well, look, it says Firstborn. So, Christian, what kind of scripture twisting are you going to do to this to make it seem like Jesus is the eternal God of the universe and not a creature? Well, like the phrase only begotten, the term firstborn also needs to be understood in its overall biblical context, even in the original language context. So let's put a finger in Colossians 1 or a bookmark or a ribbon and go back to Psalm 89. This is not the first time in the Bible, Colossians 1 is not the first time in the Bible that the word firstborn is used. In fact, the concept of being the firstborn comes up quite a bit in the Old Testament. So you can't jump to Colossians 1 and import your own individual understanding of what firstborn means and say, ta-da, that's what it means. You have to use this term the way the Bible uses this term, and you've got to start before Colossians 1. So let's look at Psalm 89, starting in verses 20 and 21. Psalm 89, verse 20. God says, I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him, with whom my hand will be established. My arm also will strengthen him. So here you have God explaining through the psalmist what he's going to be doing through the life of David. Was David important in Israel? Yeah. (laughs) What was his function? What was his role? What status did he have? King. Good. Okay. And did God make a special covenant with David? Uh-huh. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Uh, you read about it in this psalm, actually, but also 2 Samuel chapter 7, you read about the Davidic covenant. And on Wednesday nights, starting in probably two and a half weeks, maybe three and a half weeks, we're going to be examining the Davidic covenant for some time. Okay? But you have David talking about his special servant who functioned as king, who has a special covenant. God says in that covenant that he's going to give David a house, a kingdom, and a throne forever. That's a pretty big promise. Okay? And he says, 
With David, verse 21, my hand will be established and my arm will strengthen him. So God has a hand and an arm? Exactly. Yeah. Off with the heretic's head. No, 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 no. This is language that's used uh, to describe what God is doing in his life, not literal language. It's figurative language. Okay, drop down to verse 26. He will cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Here we go. Verse 27. I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So here you have the term firstborn being used. And I find interesting here as an initial observation, considering, okay, what could firstborn mean if not literally firstborn? Well, we know in verse 27, this doesn't mean literally firstborn because God is making him his firstborn. David's already been born. David's already existed. In fact, in David's own family, he wasn't even the firstborn. He was the last. He's the last one. But God here is saying, I'm going to make him my firstborn. So what, what's the range of possibility here? Well, the, the range of possibility is pretty narrow. You can't say, well, God's going to time travel and go make David the firstborn in his family. No, that's not it. God's not going to go back and make David the first creature out of all of creation, and that will make David his firstborn. No, that's not it either. So what, what do you think? Let's hear what you have to say. What could this possibly mean that God is going to make David his firstborn? It's positional. Okay, very good. Can you elaborate a little bit more? Um, so like within a family unit when the firstborn son was born then he inherited um, that position within the family and so but and what were some of the perks that came with that do you remember anybody remember the firstborn son in Israel good okay okay so firstborn Though in Israel, it did apply automatically to the first one born in a family. That's why it's called firstborn. Firstborn has to do with status, authority, and position, doesn't it? Like Mandy said at the beginning, it's a term of position. Not just rank and birth order or the order that someone was made, though typically within families, of course, that's how it worked. The firstborn was a title. It was a title that carried with it status, authority, position, privileges, certain privileges. Okay. What verse would you ask us to that psalm? It was Psalm 89, and it's really verse 27 is the, the key verse. Verse 27. Psalm 89, 27. All right, so David was made firstborn, not meaning that God somehow made him the firstborn of his family. No, God gave him the status, authority, and position of firstborn. And God says, my firstborn. I will make him my firstborn. As king, ruling over God's people, David has a special status, authority, and position as God's firstborn. Okay? Is that making sense to you? Do you have any questions on that? Doing all right? Okay. Well, let's go back to Colossians 1.15 then. And now apply what we just learned to Jesus. Colossians 
where it says Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, or yours might say over all creation. Jesus is the owner of all creation. He has status, authority, position, privilege over all created things. He has all authority. Do you remember what Jesus said right before the Great Commission? Before Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations. Do you remember what he says right before that about authority? All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Very good. He says to his disciples, behold, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And so Jesus coming into creation and then exiting creation does so with all authority. He's the firstborn or the authoritative one, the owner of all of creation. He is Lord. So when firstborn is being used here, it's not reducing his status from one and only begotten down to meaning he's a creature. That is not what Paul is doing. That's not what the apostle has in mind. The apostle is in conjunction with John maintaining the status, authority, position of Jesus. And we use the greater context of the Bible when we come across terms we don't understand because it's rare that you'll see a term for God used and that's the only place. Firstborn actually is used throughout the Bible. Okay. Well, that's not the only thing we see. Firstborn being a title of power and authority. But we also see in these verses that he is creator. Verse 16, by him... All things were created. Again, you can't emphasize this enough when it comes to distinguishing biblical Christology, a biblical view of Christ, from an unbiblical view of Christ. Jesus is the one creator. The Bible does not entertain multiple creators who are running around or a succession of creators, universe after universe after universe, in a long line, infinite regress. The Bible doesn't entertain that thought. The Bible sees one creation and one creator over that creation. And here Jesus is linked to that status as creator. And all things were created through him and for him. Christ is the person through whom God's glory is primarily displayed. And I have PPK on there, which does not stand for punt, pass, and kick uh, or anything like that. Prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is prophet, Jesus is priest, Jesus is king, and we'll talk about that in a future lesson also. All things were created through him and for him. Now, if you were a creature who was somehow enabled by God to create all other things, which is what some people believe about Jesus. He was the first creature and then God says, okay, go make stuff. And then he went and made everything else. Would it be appropriate for you as a creature, even though you're the first creature, would it be appropriate for you as a creature to make all things for yourself? No, it would not. Even if you're the first creature, you're still a creature. And you don't deserve any glory. Only the Creator deserves glory. In uh, the Psalms, I believe it's Psalm 115, it talks about the distinction, and there's also Psalm 96, the distinction between false gods and the one true God. Here's the difference. Our God made the heavens, is what it says. All the gods of men are idols, but our God made the heavens. The Creator deserves all glory. And if you are a creature 
who is then tasked with making everything else, you can go do that, sure, but you're not the creator. You're the first creature. And then you've just been given a special task to make everything else. And you don't deserve glory. But our God made the heavens. There's but one God, one creator, who gets all glory. Okay? Thoughts, questions on that? Still good? All right. 17 and 18. Someone want to read those two for us. Colossians 1, 17 and 18. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. Okay. Oh, sorry, there's more. Who right. is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Very good. So he's before all things, we see in verse 17. Before all of creation, again, this is similar to the phrase, in the beginning, it takes us back to eternity past. Um, if you wanted to say that Jesus Christ existed eternally as the Son of God before he took on flesh, it really, you can't get more explicit than saying he's before all things. It's a very comprehensive statement. All things, he's before. Okay. He's eternal. And in him, all things hold together. This is having to do with sustaining all things. If Jesus would cease to exist, which is impossible, but if he did, all things fall apart. All things consist in him. He holds all things together. He's the great manager of the entire universe. Okay? That is a function of deity. He is God who sustains all things. He's the one who keeps the water cycle going. Isn't that an amazing thing? I mean, do, where do you start? Do you start with the clouds? Do you start with the water that's here? Do you start with the water that's evaporating in the air? What do you start with? You've got, you've got water that's just cycling through, cycles through, and, you know, it's necessary for us to live. If we didn't have it, we all die. <laughs> How did that all get kicked off? How does that keep going? Jesus Christ sustains all things. He is Lord. And he's the firstborn from the dead, the first to rise in immortality. He has proven that he is the sovereign. Jesus demonstrated his authority as firstborn through his unique resurrection. There were people who were resurrected before Jesus. Can you name some? Lazarus. No, Lazarus, good. What is it? Is it Elijah? Yeah, there was a boy that was healed by an Old Testament prophet, or resurrected. Okay, yeah, and Jesus' Jesus's ministry. Right? He resurrected. You're leaving out a big big event. How about when Jesus was on the cross and the tombs were open? Remember Matthew's Gospel? Yeah. Chapter 27. It's down like, that's a long chapter. It's like down verse 50 something or 60 something. When Jesus was on the cross, the tombs were open and dead people came out. That's cool. Don't you want to know more about that? Well, all we have is what Matthew told us about. Okay? But what is different about Jesus' resurrection from all those other ones is he's the first to rise in immortality. All those people died again. Jesus' friend, Lazarus, he had been dead for a while, and he came out, whoa, how amazing! And the next week he got hit by a bus. No, I don't know, I don't know what happened. <laughs> but, but he had to die again. He had to face death a second time, just like everyone else who had risen. But Jesus rises in immortality, and what is he doing in that resurrection? Well, the Bible tells us, I think this is Romans 1, where it says he was declared to be the son of God by the resurrection from the dead. He demonstrated his authority 
as the one true God, as the Lord of all creation by His immortal resurrection. He is not just Lord of all creation, He's the Lord specifically of the dead. Because He's been there and He's risen. He's the Lord of all things. We really mean that comprehensively. He's the sovereign. Okay? Good. Thoughts or questions on that? So, to clarify, so at that time, the people who had died previously who were believers, they had a bodily resurrection, and then then everybody from now on, or since Jesus' resurrection, Mm -hmm. then when he returns... Will receive our bodily yeah. So those, right? yeah, those who had been resurrected before, those who we were listing off, they were. It was a true bodily resurrection. They didn't come out as ghosts or anything like that. With that body that went in the tomb, they came out with. However, they died again, and that body has been in the grave ever since, decaying. Now their spirit still exists. Their immaterial aspect still exists, but their body is still in the grave. When Jesus returns, uh, first for his church. And the dead in Christ rise first, and the rest of us who are alive and remain will be caught up. That is now where the bodies start to become glorified. It starts with the church, where the body that's resurrected is now in a glorified state out of the tomb, never to die again. That body's not decaying. We don't exist forever with Jesus as ghosts. We have a real physical existence with Jesus. And then there's another resurrection. The book of Revelation talks about multiple resurrections. Uh, you think of, uh, there's Daniel 12.2, where it says there will be a great resurrection Those will come from the grave, some to uh, everlasting life and others to everlasting contempt. Those who will be risen to everlasting contempt have not risen yet when Jesus comes for his church. They're still in the grave. Uh, You think of Jesus in John chapter 5 where he says that there will be a great judgment of the the living and the dead, but there will be a resurrection. Some will uh, be resurrected to judgment and others won't. Okay, so there's a, there are multiple resurrections going on, but eventually we get to the place where all people are resurrected, their bodies come out of the grave, and you have believers who are not facing the great white throne judgment of God, who will not be sentenced to condemnation in any sense, and they will live a real physical existence forever with God in the new earth. You have the others who will be also resurrected, those who rejected the gospel, rejected their creator, who lived in rebellion and are judged in their sin, and they will be resurrected to live a life that's in the lake of fire, a true physical existence that's everlasting torment, not some kind of ghostly pain, but a real true physical pain in addition to spiritual torment. Okay? Questions on that? Joe. <laughs> so, yeah, there's, there, there's different stuff that gets added into that where, um, yeah, the Latter-day Saints teach... That when you die, of course, your body does go in the grave and your, your immaterial is separate from your material, which we believe too. However, uh, they believe that the immaterial exists in a spirit world that is on this earth. And there are two types of existences in that spirit world. One is spirit paradise and the other is spirit prison. We believe that when someone dies who's a Christian, his spirit goes to be with the Lord, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. And someone who doesn't know God uh, now goes to Sheol, the grave, Hades, as Jesus called it, and they have an existence in hell. Uh, The Latter-day Saints would teach that in that spirit world, you can switch realms. And that's done by accepting temple work done for you by proxy by people who haven't died yet. And that will allow you to jump the chasm and get into spirit paradise, where you will still have to engage in good works to make your way to the top heaven. Um, whereas, you know, we see 
It is appointed for man once to die and then comes judgment. Hebrews 9.27. That wants to die, then judgment. So when, when you die, if you are a believer who has been justified by God, that's been done in heaven, that is bound forever, he's declared you innocent, you are already, even in this life, exalted with Jesus, Ephesians 2.6 says. So when you die, you go to be where you already are. Uh, for those who have rejected Christ, when they die, they, they face an immediate judgment. Now, it's not the final judgment. There's a great white throne that exists in their future. But they still face an immediate judgment where their soul does go to the, you say, Gehenna, Jesus said. Hell, we say. Hades is another word. The grave. Uh, Jesus described this in Luke 16 with Lazarus and the rich man. Okay, where you've got the rich man who died and went to Hades, and he was in flame, in torment. And that great chasm can't be crossed once you die. The Bible never entertains that idea. There's uh, this life that God has given, and the decisions in this life that are made have eternal impact. Other thoughts or questions? Do Mormon, I know? Mormons don't believe in like, an actual hell, right? Like we do. Like, they Correct. They don't think they'll be tormented. They think that, that it's like... Yes, it's so the uh, descriptions of flame should be taken or, or fire should be taken figuratively in the LDS sense. And in the final analysis, you've got your three kingdoms of heaven and then outer darkness. In outer darkness, they would not put fire there. They would not, I don't think, even put eternal torment given by God there. But rather, you've chosen this for yourself to sit in a dark room for all eternity and you can't get out. And they also... In all of my experience, anyway, they hesitate to define who goes there. Because Hitler's going to be in the bottom heaven. He's going to be in the celestial uh, kingdom. Yeah, and, and he'll, he'll live in the nicest country club that you've ever seen. Uh, he just won't be able to be with Jesus. He won't be able to uh, be married for eternity and become his own God and all that stuff. So. Because you're just, because as a child, you don't want to be alone, you don't like the dark, you're scared of all these things, and that's, like, they start very young teaching you that. Like, I don't remember a lot of what they taught me, but that I do. Yeah. And it's very, it's almost scarier than the way, like, Revelation or any other fucking does describe it, because it's, it's terrifying. Yeah. Yep. And you start very young. Well, um, something that's for certain, uh, too, while we're on this point of talking about where, the, uh, where sinners will go when they die, is hell is not a place where uh, people are going to be having a good time. And there was like a, I think it was a New York Times best-selling book 15 years ago or so, I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell, you know. Uh, there's that kind of idea in our culture of mocking hell, like, ah, oh, we're just going to have a good time. And, and even sometimes in the, uh, I don't want to keep focusing on Latter-day Saint stuff, but since we're on the point. Sometimes you'll hear from Latter-day Saints saying, well, God will give people what they want. So if they choose that, that's what they're going to get. But that's not even it. I mean, there's, there's obviously a, an aspect where that's true, where people want their sin and they want judgment from God. That's what they're going to get. But it's not this, you're getting what you want. You're just having a good time for eternity off heaven. You know, you're just sitting up there playing a harp and worshiping this big old bright you know, ball in the sky you can't even really see. That's boring. I want to go down to hell where there ACDC and beer exists. You know, that's where I want to go uh, is you know, to go 
have a good, good time down there with my cocaine and stuff. You know, it's like, <laughs> what? Uh, that is not, that's not what happens, okay? Um, <clears throat> neither one of those descriptions is anywhere near accurate what happens, okay? Uh, so we have to think biblically about these things and say, no, it's that place where you're actually going to experience eternal conscious torment from God himself. God is present there in hell. You ever thought about that? God's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And who's doling out the torment? It's not Satan. This is after Satan's defeated. Who's doling out the torment in the lake of fire? Well, it's God himself. Okay? Something to think about. All right, let's keep going. Yeah, go ahead. Because I've always heard that hell is like the absence of God. That's where there's no the water. Yeah, no that's water. a wrong, wrong view. Yeah, that, this is the first time I've actually yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's like hell is, it's, it's, you know, where Satan is with his pitchfork and everyone's, we're having a good time. You know, if you watch South Park, that's how it's depicted. You know? <laughs> but but that, is, that is just not the reality. The reality is God is present there as a righteous and holy God who is causing the sinner to undergo an eternal punishment that is well-deserved for their sins and rejecting him. I mean, that's a great point. I just, for some reason, yeah. you know, I've never heard that before. That's good. Good, good. Well, you just got a preview of our eschatology lessons. That'll be way down the road. But, you know, anytime this stuff comes up, we can address it as we go. So Colossians 1, 19 and 20. I thought this was going to be a short class today, but we're not even going to finish. Would someone read 19 and 20 for us? Colossians 1, 19 and 20. Okay. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> Mandy, go. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell if you were looking to describe to somebody that Jesus is God, is there a, a clearer statement you could make than the fullness of God dwells in the person of Jesus? <laughs> I mean, talk about people who say, well, the Bible never says Jesus is God. How do you get past this? Right? How do you get past this? And it's not the only time in Colossians this comes up. The fullness of God. Jesus is 100% God. And the cross-reference to another part of Colossians is Colossians 2.9, where it says essentially the same thing, but a little differently. It says, in him, talking about Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. How, you just can't get past that. If you're someone seeking to deny the deity of Christ, this is as clear as I think it can be made. The fullness of God dwells in the person of Christ. And it talks about reconciliation in that passage Mandy read for us. This reconciliation has started now. Your salvation is a ministry of God's reconciliation. You've been reconciled to God. We are ambassadors for Christ now as Christians. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, on behalf of God, be reconciled to him. That's our ministry. But there's also a future fulfillment aspect. Uh, perhaps you remember in Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, it says that all creation groans. Just being affected by sin. Like all creation is affected. You've got dead trees in your yard, right? You, you find it, an animal carcass on the side of the road. There's disease that exists around the globe. All of creation groans together. Well, there's coming a day that by the blood of the cross of Christ, all of creation will be reconciled. That's one of the purposes for the atonement of Christ is to reconcile all things to God. And it started now in the lives of his people, but there's a future aspect to that. And it is by the blood of his cross. 
Only the God-man's cross is effective for true reconciliation in the world. There is no other means by which God is going to bring all things to a restored state. No other means by which a fallen creation can be reconciled to a holy God. Only through the blood of the cross of Christ. This is another statement that gets to the exclusivity of salvation. There is no other way for a man to be saved than by Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12, there's no other name under heaven by which we may be saved than Jesus Christ. You can only be reconciled to God through the blood of the cross of Christ. It's the only way you can effectively be reconciled, whether you are a, a human being or a part of fallen creation. It's going to be through the blood of Christ. Okay? One minute left. Uh-oh. You got questions? Anybody thoughts or questions? Okay. The subject of the firstborn is just fun to continue diving into that. It makes me always think of the Jacob and Esau. Yes, very good. Just the positional authority that is given to that. Fight over it. Even the father who gave the blessing to the wrong one mm-hmm. wasn't even willing to take it back. Yeah. To make sure that the proper one got it. But it's it's about having the authority over the family, and yeah. being able to make those decisions as father passes away and being in charge. And it's pretty typical in the Old Testament to see it that way. In the New Testament, it gets construed that the rest of the world wants to say first. Yes. In English, because English is. That's right, it's the language of heaven. Uh, let, me, let me dwell on that end by dwelling on that. Dean was just mentioning Jacob and Esau. So let me ask you two questions. Who was the firstborn, Jacob or Esau? Esau. Firstborn bodily. Oh, okay. Okay, so, so who is the firstborn in that relationship? Jacob. Jacob. Yeah, you guys remember that? He stole the birthright. Okay. Now, how, now, why did that happen? That's how I'll ask that. Why, why did that happen? Well, God preordained it, didn't he? Oh, whoa, whoa, okay. So we read Genesis, and of course, Jacob was being conniving and what? sinful and deceptive. It was through his own greed and deception. But then we read Romans chapter 9, and it says, Before the two were ever born, God chose Jacob. Okay, you can dwell on that and think about it as you go to sleep. Okay. Well, let me pray and then we'll move on to the next thing. God, thank you so much for this study. Thank you that you are so much bigger than we are and that you've given us so much information through your word that we can study and grow closer to you. Help us to continue doing that today as we move into the next aspect of our worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.